0: Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast.
1: See when you're young, you're a kid, you got time, you got nothing but
2: time. Throw away a couple of years here, a couple of years there. Doesn't matter. The older you get, you say, Jesus,
1: how much I got? I got 35 summers left. Think about it.
2: The
0: following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language.
1: The Rusty
2: James if Wilcox looking for you, Rusty James? Nah. He says he's gonna kill you, Rusty James. Saying ain't doing.
0: Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Rumblefish. Starring Matt Dylan.
1: I said, what if your brother came back and found out?
2: <laughs> My brother ain't back, man, alright? I'm sick of hearing this shit. I don't know when he's coming back, if he's coming back, so if you assholes want to wait around for the rest of your life to see what he says,
0: fine. Diane Lane.
1: You always try so hard to be like your brother, Mr. James. Hey, my brother's the coolest. Well, you're better than cool. You're warm. <laughs> yeah, but he's smart. You're smart. You're just not word smart. Nicholas Cage. You know, you might have made it a while on the Motorcycle Boys rap. You ain't got your brother's brains. You've got to be smart to run things. It's nothing personal, Rusty James. But nobody would follow you into a gang fight. Dennis Hopper. Your mother was not crazy. Neither, contrary to popular belief, she felt it crazy. He's learning this cast to play. He was born in the wrong era on the wrong
0: side of the river. A Mickey Roar. You
1: know, if you're going to lead people, you have to have somewhere to go.
0: Directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The Greeks got him. It's Gally
3: in Glasgow. Uh, a man who's never been accused of having an acute perception. It's Devwin in London.
1: You know, if you're going to lead people, you have to have somewhere to go.
4: It's Patrick in London. <laughs> Why? Why? Hey. Why?
5: <laughs> Why? Huh? Why? Why? It's Matt in South Korea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, welcome
0: back, gang, and welcome back, listeners. And listeners, just so you're a, you know, you're not completely thrown by. <laughs> we're, we aren't doing uh, kind of Marlon Brando <laughs> Godfather <laughs> off. So this isn't it we're not doing that well we are back and we're doing a throwback and devlin this one's yours so we are doing francis ford coppola's or coppola depends on which one uh which one should i say coppola, coppola? i was
5: coppola when i was younger and now i'm coppola so you take your pick mm. it's
0: a bit like larry and lawrence isn't it
5: but none of us said um no one said scorsese which i was surprised with but um uh, well, well, I, I don't I didn't want to be too pretentious. Yeah, yeah, that is. This this is the time for pretension.
0: Plus, he's a friend of mine. I called him Marty during the whole show. So yeah, that, yeah. I, if I refer to Francis Ford as FFC, I'm not talking about full, final, complete. I'm <laughs> talking <laughs> about Francis Ford Coppola. Okay, full so, and fried um, chicken. <laughs> we are we are doing uh, the his 1983 film, not The Outsiders, but Rumble And Devlin, this was your choice. Mm. And I know that this is something that you've been passionate about for the longest time, certainly the longest time I've known you. So, uh, so why don't you tell us uh, first experiences and why why Rumblefish?
3: Oh, uh, we'll get the plugs in early. Head to rewindmoviecast.com. Oh, <laughs> the wow. Website.
4: The website. We're only three minutes in. What are you playing at?
3: If you go to our About section, you'll see that Matt has uh, done some lovely illustrations of the four of us listed next to our top 10 favorite films of all time. One of mine is rumblefish um rumblefish was a film that i feel like i fell in love with before i actually got to see it um on the road to film school i would say francis ford Coppola was the second director that i ever became kind of obsessed with probably after terry gilliam the second filmmaker whose career kind of taught me what it is that a filmmaker is about like you know became a fan of the creator rather than the Rather than the material or the or the or the or the cast or an actor or whatever, um, uh, my mom, I remember bought me uh Virgin Film series books. I don't know if you guys remember these, mm, they were yeah, yeah, director yeah. books. Uh, the only one I had was the Francis Ford Coppola book, and I and I pored over that thing, um. And it wasn't until I got to film school that I got to watch um all of 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 Coppola's movies. Everything was in the VHS library. Mm. uh at leeds met and that's but, where i watched
4: the godfather did it?
5: yeah right and formative uh, place for me as well i broke a bag because i tried to get like seven videos out at once so. <laughs> <laughs> it was great they were uh, uh
3: they were all taped off the telly pretty much and they had the excerpt from the radio Times slipped inside the, yeah, the, awesome. the cover yeah um but just from reading that book the coppola book there were these still images these kind of very um uh, high contrast, very romantic, still frames. And the way that they spoke about the film was the, um, just from the, the the words that Coppola and his crew were using, you could tell that they had a great affection for this film and that it was also described as a bit of a sort of noble failure, I guess, which is that it didn't do particularly well financially. It? it wasn't a film that had a, a, a very high profile at the time. Uh, but there was a DVD out which I went to buy. And I watched it religiously after I'd seen it first time on the on the video, and uh, about a year later they they released a two disc special edition with a slightly different coloured font. So yeah. I went and bought that as well. So for the longest time, I had two copies of this on DVD, and um, I just absolutely loved it. It was a, um, a a film that that I would return to frequently, um, and I think I would yammer on about it to use lot quite a lot. <laughs> um uh well galley i'll i'll come to you next soon as you were exposed to most to my bullshit back then seeing as how we uh shared a basement um mm. what was your first experience of rumblefish
0: i so, well um my first experience was uh was wednesday uh this week uh so despite your uh your passionate um enthusiasm for the film because I remember you trying to make me watch this many, many times. Um, and I would always be like, well, that's the, what else have you got?
3: <laughs> I, Do you remember what put it, you off? No. Absolute lack of trust in my taste.
0: Yeah, which is no, I, 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 no, of course not, mate. I think, I think clearly, um, you know, long-time listeners will probably get a sense of where our, where our kind of sensibilities are. And certainly what we prefer versus, you know, I will watch anything. But at the same time, I do need to be press ganged at times to to give something an opportunity. Um, and even then, when I had oodles of time, I mean, it's worse now. It really is worse now. I really need to be like, no, I have to go and see this because I'll just find a reason not to see it. Um, and this one, yeah, I, I just, uh, I, it wasn't like an aversion. It wasn't like,
5: oh, no. Commercial no, no. sensibilities?
0: Yeah, I think so, Matt. I think my head space at that time was um, that. A bit of recency bias. So you were all talking about how you um, got into Coppola uh, University. I'd seen all of his major works and loved them. And we'd watched Apocalypse Now together, Devlin. And again, something that I absolutely revere and love and cherish. Uh, but I'd also seen Jack, and I'd seen Jack quite a bit on Sky. <laughs> and so there was a part of me that was like, is a is a kind of and this is going to sound really harsh, but this is, this is an 18-year-old thinking, he's a has-been, he, he's had his moment. I don't think the last great thing that I ever really enjoyed of his was Bram Stoker's Dracula, which actually now feels like a controversial take because I think, uh, I don't realise that people really don't like that film, but mm. I, I, I thought it was it was a triumph. In fact, I, I wrote a screenplay and tried to get Screen Yorkshire to pay for a fairy tale that I was basically going to steal the look. From Bram Stoker's Dracula, it didn't go anywhere, too. Um, But yeah, yeah. So that was it. So first time watching me, so I'm going to very much be the quiet man who asks <laughs> questions, sometimes with intent behind them. Um, but yeah, what about you, Patrick Rumblefish? Did Did Devlin get his hooks into you?
4: I was hoping to be the quiet man as well because it was the first time this week. Also, <laughs> hey, me um, and then... <laughs> I mean, Dev can
5: be the noisy man. It's okay,
4: <laughs> I um, it, it's funny. Uh, Something I may not have talked to you about before, but like when I was growing up and films, like I watched Jack and Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, you know, when I was younger, a lot younger. And I, yeah, I genuinely believe I wasn't aware who the filmmaker was. There were just films to watch. Mm. Maybe uh, it was Robin Williams was the pull for Jack. And for Bram Stoker, it was, I don't know, Oldman, something, um, vampires. Vampires, <laughs> mum and dad were watching it and it was an mm-hmm. adult film, so I was like, yeah, great. But it, there was a lot of films back then, I just wasn't aware of, like, who the filmmaker was. I was thinking about this this week, about Joe Dante. But anyway, that's a sidetrack. And for Rumblefish, um Devlin, when, when you did your top 10, I actually bought it then on oh, D. And I was like, I've got to watch this. I think you and I had just been to a pub quiz with Lev and you and Lev connected over Rumblefish because you were wearing your T-shirt that you have yeah. designed and were wearing. And I got a nice postcard of Netflix. your... <laughs> 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 Available online. Um, and you gave me a nice postcard of it as well. And I was really like, oh, you know, it piqued my interest. You know, Gally said you need to be kind of PR during, um, hooked in to, to something. That did... The image was great, the fish, the clock, the actors. And then I'd learn it was Coppola. I'm like, wow, I've been, I'm i really unaware of this film. And it's taken me all, since that top 10, it took me all this time to watch it. We've spoken about it before briefly. And uh, yeah, I watched it this week a couple of times. That's my general history with it. Um Matt, oh. you're louder than Gally and I today.
5: Mm. Well, um, as previously mentioned on the pod, this was my TCM black filter coffee. Formative era where I stayed up late recording films onto VHS tapes on long play. You can fit four on if you're careful. <laughs> <laughs> From like Film Four, Sky Movies. We got Sky really late, like in 2000. So um I was obsessed with the movie channels. So th- this was a time when I was making lots of big discoveries. It was a really exciting time for me. um Like Cool Hand Luke with Nail, you know, stuff like that. And I was probably about 18, 19. So I'll have been in. Andy Willoughby's A-Level Film Studies class, which we've mentioned. Dedlin I've heard was... that name before. Yeah, he yeah. was also in the... Uh, Dev was also in the class, but at a different time, right, Dev?
0: I need to ring a bell every time Willoughby's name gets mentioned.
5: <laughs> He's not bell. on social media anymore, so um, um I'd love to get some of these episodes to him, because um <laughs> Andy was like if Peter Laurie and Dennis Hopper had a child and it came from Middlesbrough. <laughs> <laughs> and, I can see that. Um, and he sounds like an easy writer <laughs> yeah um we did we talked about that one too a lot but this was the first time i heard rumblefish mentioned was in his class and uh he he was and i'm sure still is a really knowledgeable passionate kind of uh, guy um when it comes to film and poetry and he was really generous with his infectious enthusiasm and humor so the first time I heard Rumblefish, Rusty James, The Motorcycle Boy, these things would consistently sort of pepper our A-level film classes. And so like you, Patrick, we sort of got pushed into it in a way. It was like homework without being set homework. We just sort of in- intrigued by it. And Andy's Dennis Hopper impressions were the-, the thing of legend. It was mostly Frank Booth in in Blue Velvet, but he also did <laughs> mm-hmm. bits from other from other films too so uh, and he was a big tom waits guy i think as well which helped um your language? So, yeah watch um it, watch it. bring it down bring it down, <laughs> get down from there uh so i i've, I've probably thanked him already but I've, i remember thanking him on the credits of the first film that i ever wrote and and directed because he was like a, a, a formative teacher for me i wrote this really pretentious derivative film called moths uh which in spite of what my unfocused writing tutor, and thought thought it was about. It wasn't actually about a haunted telephone. I'll just say that. Now. <laughs> uh, Dev, I think Dev's seen it, so he might know what I'm talking about. But um, I have
3: seen it. Yeah,
5: uh, it's well pretentious, but yeah, it's the first one I tried. So you know, um, thank you, Andy. Uh, so in in our group, Cop- Coppola Coppola was considered the guy. He was like alongside Kurosawa and Ozu and Wells. These were the people we were studying. And that cross cut stuff from the Godfather with the baptism and the murder, we were taught, you know, this, this guy is a, a master. Mm. And, um, I think maybe someone showed a clip from Rumblefish as an example of expressionism in film. Uh, perhaps the bit where Rusty James leaves his body and, and levitates, which feels very eight mm. and a half. And uh, it was done brilliantly in another film in a similar way with Vincent Gallo in a, a film called Johnny 316 that I don't think anyone saw. Um, I think I picked Natural Born Killers and my mate Rohan, who I saw, uh, Mean Streets with, he picked The End of Buffalo 66 as an example of it too. Oh, nice. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I'd, anyway, I finally got the DVD from either play.com or HMV Darlington. Can't remember which, but this is one I own. So I was really happy to have picked it. I've got it on Criterion Blu ray and I haven't dipped into all the extras. So this was an excuse to go, to go through it for the first time in maybe for the dvd for the first time and to see the film in its entirety for the first time in about 20 years almost Mm. 20 years i've seen bits and bobs but i've never watched the the film all the way through since back in the day so yeah that's mine what i would like to do
0: though is just kind of provide some context because what i found interesting uh, and again i'm coming in completely cold is that i did not realize devlin um and maybe listeners might not either that you know, many directors released two films in the same year. Um, Spielberg's famously done it uh, a couple of times, uh, et cetera. But, but Coppola on this, he's making The Outsiders and he's also developing this to the point where I read, a, a watched an interview with him when he was talking about, he essentially was like, I'm a little bit tired of being in the Outsiders aesthetic, which is like the complete antithesis of what um, Rumblefish is. Uh, so he was developing rumblefish um same author that correct of the outsiders and and then developing the screenplay but also visually um and this is the bit where i'm like god you must have some capacity in that brain of yours because it is is when you have a vision um and you're trying to you know commit that to celluloid bloody difficult to then also have another film and another vision and that vision be completely different so he's developing them at the same time right that that's the that's the thing in 82
3: uh yeah 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 uh, both are released in 83 we're actually just uh on the cusp of the 40th anniversary of this one it came out in October of uh 1983 um I mean a little kind of uh a little kind of whistle stop tour of what Coppola was up to at this point obviously Coppola um Achieved a a level of extraordinary success quite early in his career. Um, I always figured him as kind of the spearhead of that new Hollywood, uh, pack. You know, um, I guess generally that would be Scorsese, Spielberg, Lucas. Usually, uh, Brian De Palma would be put in there. Um, uh, you'd have kind of figures like John Milius who are also in the mix.
4: The film brands.
3: Uh, yeah. And uh, I, couple always, even though they were very, very similar in age, and they still are, because of linear time. Uh, he seemed to get a lot. He got a lot of. He was like the spearhead. Oftentimes, he was the first person I think who was working in film. Like, um, he started out. Uh, uh, well, he he made a um. A Russ Mayer-esque nudie cutie was the first thing he ever shot when he was 17, (laughs) which didn't go anywhere until it was bought by some enterprising producer and cut into a completely uh, randomly chosen film because it wasn't long enough. So they spliced them together uh, to be able to sell them as a feature. And he was actually hired to do the edit job on that. So he ended up uh, working for Corman from where he got to direct a horror movie called Dementia 13. Uh, which is available widely
5: on DVD, and I would recommend it. It's it's actually very good. Um, so in black and, <clears> and white, Dev, because he mentioned making is, a horror uh, film in black and white earlier in his career. I didn't know which one it was. That's the and, one. And yet, Dev, Dimension. is that the
0: one way he's he's got that deal whilst he's still at UCLA?
3: Yeah. So, so that's he's the, that's Dementia the difference 13, isn't it, between he, between
0: him and and the other film brand yeah. is that you know you you said he's the spearhead, but he mm. he comes out of the seventies as 100 percent oh he's successful. already
3: primed yeah dementia 13 was in like what 63 64 he's really like really really young um and then he actually gets to direct uh a, 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 what you would consider to be an a, a real film in, in 66 which is you're a big boy now um and then another which is uh the rain people which is i guess probably what he would consider to be his first like altered film
5: is it too too early for rain people trivia? There was a, you know the bit where he where he frees all of the um pets from the pet shop? Uh that's actually a scene from the rain people, uh, where J- James Kahn frees all the all the animals from like this uh, like gas station. Uh couple called it the Auschwitz of uh, pet shops. So it's like he's freeing all these, these animals. And S. E. Hinton Susie right she's Susie yeah um writer of the the book yeah the writer of Rumblefish um put into Rumblefish that having seen that film not knowing Mm. it was Coppola and then later he ended up filming the scene that she wrote that was inspired by the film that he made that no one knew yeah it was like life (laughs) imitating art imitating life again
4: When, when did he meet Lucas though
5: uh, so he was working with lucas
3: uh very early on lucas i think was did, a did guy he that shadow
4: he, him i'm trying to remember yeah he was story. kind of his
3: protege so um mm. i think it's possible that he met him uh on in the coleman years maybe right. he was placed with him uh and you can see a bunch of like there's some amazing uh uh footage from you know news articles or whatever or showbiz articles whatever that would be back in the day uh and you can see coppola you know the big Bear of a man with his big seventies beard and his kind of smoke lens glasses, looking cool as fuck, and like mm. Lucas is just always next to him, yeah, <laughs> like just sort of on his side, like the little guy from uh, Return <laughs> of, the of the Jedi. Jedi. <laughs> Not quite, but, um, <laughs> mean but fair. <laughs> he was he was his guy, and Coppola was the guy who was largely responsible for getting George Lucas into filmmaking. The two of, right. the two of them were set up quite early. Uh, coppola was the first kind of he was uh nominated for an oscar not for his directing but for his writing on um pattern actually he won the oscar yeah.
2: uh, for
3: the screenwriting for the p- film pattern in 70 which was probably what gave him the clout to be able to go off and and take on the godfather despite again still being very 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 young
4: that's what got him the job
3: yeah mm, frank uh,
4: warner um he he took him from there to write with utzer
3: all right uh, um so you know his his seventies is obviously a lot better known. You've got the Godfather and the Godfather Two, and in the middle of that sandwich, you've got the Conversation, which is just an extraordinary personal piece of filmmaking. And to have three those three films in the space of three years is is, is phenomenal. But uh, from there, you you have uh, Apocalypse Now. At this point, um, his success was always geared towards being able to set him up essentially as a completely standalone element free of the influence of the evil industry he wanted to set up zoetrope studios and zoetrope studios was going to be um a a a haven Haven. for filmmakers yeah oh and um it was you know it was not just him but all of his friends and all of his collaborators and even like you know uh filmmakers that influenced him he was going to invite them in he was like I don't know, Barbet schroeder and uh he he was responsible for the career renaissance of akira kurosawa in the in the early 80s um and uh a, apocalypse now was was a, a a chastening experience a grueling experience but one that was very successful unfortunately what uh hit the skids was his follow-up film one from the heart mm. which uh is an attempt to make a grounded musical so that the character um. Interactions would be almost kind of kitchen sink drama, but the music uh, and the production values would be very grand. He lost his fucking mind, and he built the entire of Las Vegas on a soundstage. And uh, he basically leveraged all of his finances and his money and the studio that he'd built to this point. Uh, he ended up being personally on the hook for $26 million for wow. One from the Heart. And it's theatrical box office take in total was $650,000. Oh my God. Jeez. Okay.
4: It's
3: crazy, um, isn't it?
5: Wiped that, him out. That was pushed on me at film school by the mad Portuguese count that I've mentioned in you know, some past <laughs> episodes. He, we were made to watch that one as well. So it seems like, you know, critically acclaimed, whether these things make any money or not.
3: Yeah. I, I got a lot of love for one from the heart. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's how you end up here. Um he ended up taking on the outsiders because a group of um children wrote to him their school librarian sent him a batch of letters saying that mm. they loved this movie, this book the outsiders and that they all agreed that he'd be the perfect person to make a movie of it and at the time he was obviously you know i love that story that's pretty jason so he mm. he went and he clearly had such an incredible time with uh... but he's
4: very big on family and yeah. working yeah. you mentioned they like that haven but it's is that almost to his detriment, you know, just he well it collapsed was, like, eventually family, it close to him.
0: Yeah. But we but we did Patrick, you say that, but we discussed uh Marty, a friend of mine. I don't I don't say uh, I agree with that, Matt. No, no I'm, just, no, I'm just saying, but you know, we discussed uh about uh how Scorsese has the same collabor or you know, manages to pull through the same collaborators and actually mm. if you look at um Spielberg yeah they, yeah, they they always keep. There's a certain group, um, and that the, they take along with them. Um, obviously Spielberg's been operating for so bloody long that he's had to get new groups. But yeah, but fundamentally, you know, you'll get a five six picture run of the same collaborators, and then you you kind of well, evolve. And so I don't think Coppola necessarily. I don't think that's a to a detriment. I know you you're asking the question.
4: Well, you and I spoke about it, and Aiden spoke about it on the open slate. Yeah, the,
0: the, <laughs> the open slate. Uh,
4: you know, like we enjoy working with certain people. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: kind mm-hmm. of, but are they also those certain people are the people that are able to challenge you. I suppose the mm. danger sometimes is that if they're so close, do they not yeah, say, yeah. Uh, you know, Francis, yeah. it's a lot of money for this musical. um know, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we, we want to like uh, make three films with this money.
5: <laughs> but he put oh, his yeah. own money in on uh, Apocalypse Now as well, didn't he? That was mm. another one that. You know, yeah. he mortgaged his house or whatever. Yeah, that's him. the
0: one for me. Not to psycho, like pseudo psychoanalyze Coppola, but I wonder, never the same filmmaker, I don't think. And I wonder no, if yeah. it's just a case of like, I don't want to ever go. I wrote in my notes, does he? did he ever want to go back to the kind of the metaphorical jungle again? Like just the idea of being in that kind of environment where you're trying to, control. you know, because filmmaking is about control. And he he essentially decided to go into the one place where there is zero control and try and, you know, hammer out a film. And he makes an unbelievable film,
5: but to what cost? Rumblefish represents, like, um, he he said that part, it was quite sad that he was talking about his career and he, he thought maybe he should have just made 20 modestly sized pictures like Rumblefish with the same amount of artistic integrity and... Just, just made maybe 20 of those on a, on a lower level. And that would have been his, his lot in life. That would have been his filmography.
4: The couple I did say, like, he was very famous for seeking that perfect shade of yellow, as he called it, which was um, a reference to, uh, it might have been Picasso looking for the right paint to finish his artwork. And he was very uh, detailed manner, but I like what uh, Brando said about him that is like, if, if Francis is on board, we're in safe hands.
0: Good context there, devs, and I'm sure we'll we'll keep going back to um FFC. As I said, not full final or complete, uh, but that's Francis Ford Coppola or Coppola. Fuck's cake! Oh, or oh, or oh, one of my favourite winemakers ever is also always known California wine. <laughs> <laughs>
3: This is the it it's fermented
0: worm. in the bottle, which I, also I don't know where else it would be fermented. The as well as it same in the French, French
4: excellence.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, oh, I love the French does he do anything? That's gotta be the best one. <laughs> anyway, um, right. So, um, so Patrick, would you would you please remind us and the listeners of the plot to Rumblefish?
4: In Tulsa, Oklahoma, Rusty James is playing pool at Benny's Billiards when Cool Cat Midget informs him that Biff Wilcox is looking for him and says he's going to kill him. But saying ain't doing Rusty James is to meet Biff behind the pet store at 10pm, but he won't go alone. His friends, Smokey and Steve, express their concern. Rusty James's brother, the infamous motorcycle boy, hasn't been around for two months and his band grumbles, forming truces, but Rusty James ain't having none of it is in charge now and loves a rumble his loyal friend BJ hyping him up while Benny tries to get them to watch their language Rusty James meets his would-be girlfriend from school Patty and insists on hanging out but some company he is falling asleep on the couch almost making him late for his fight Patty begging him not to go he makes it to his gang and Biff arrives amidst the flashing lights of a train and they rumble Biff pulls a knife but Rusty James has the beating of him till the motorcycle boy makes a dramatic appearance distracting Rusty James and Biff takes a cheap shot slashing him in the side with a shard of glass before the motorcycle boy launches his motorbike at Biff ending proceedings. They pass a watching hateful cop Patterson as Steve and the motorcycle boy take Rusty James home to recover who has fever dreams about Patterson. Rusty James bumps into Cassandra, an ex-lover of Motorcycle Boy, and he says she's clean. And that night, Rusty James and the Motorcycle Boy's father comes home. Rusty James asks his father for some money, as he's said to Patty that he'd take her out, an empty promise. And their father tells the Motorcycle Boy he's like his mother. Rusty James goes to a house party and sleeps with someone else, and goes back to school to find he's now suspended Rusty James goes to walk Patty home, but she's heard all about his little party for Marshall Lake, and he's treating her like shit. She's done. Rusty James is lost. As the motorcycle boy plays down a photo of him in a magazine, Patterson says he hates the motorcycle boy's reputation. That night, Rusty James and the motorcycle boy, and Steve go out in the town for escapism and the motorcycle board tells Rusty James he's found their estranged mother in California. He thought she was dead. Steve and Rusty James stumble home and are attacked by thugs. Rusty James is knocked out and has a lucid out-of-body reception of his own legacy. The motorcycle board comes to their aid again, deftly dispatching the thugs and nurses Steve and Rusty James, telling them that the life they lead maybe isn't all they believed it to be, and acknowledges Perhaps his own insanity. Maybe he is like his mother. Patty and Smokey are now dating. Smokey spit in truth to Rusty James. He knew his behaviour at the party would be would get back to Patty and tells him his leadership is not good enough. He's not smart enough. Another blow to his ambition to be like his brother. Maybe he's more like his father. Rusty James finds the most boy looking at some Siamese fighting fish at the pet store. He's fascinated by it the rumble fish he calls them who'd fight their own reflection he wonders if they'd do the same if he set them free the motorcycle boy steals a bike and they ride across town back to the pet store where he releases animals he tells Rusty james he wants to put the fish in the river and make him promise to leave and get to the ocean Rusty james pleads with his brother but he's not the brother he wanted the motorcycle boy can't give him what he needs and as the motorcycle boy takes the fish patterson shoots him dead Rusty James is distraught. He saves the fish and puts them in the river, completing the Pied Piper's last journey. Rusty James sees clearly for the first time amidst the police car's flashing lights, and as those around him mourn the motorcycle boy, he keeps his promise and rides to the Pacific Ocean, something his brother never achieved. The motorcycle boy reigns.
0: Bravo. Bravo, Patrick.
4: It didn't help that I kept um, abbreviating Rusty James to J-R for some reason, and I had to like, alternate <laughs> G- Jim Ross. <laughs> By God!
2: broken, <laughs> broken in hell!
4: hell. <laughs> well, I hope that
3: um, did it justice, Dev. Oh, no, absolutely. That's uh, uh, very comprehensive. I suppose the
0: first thing to talk about, uh, Dev, is the first thing that struck me, which is the look, the sound, the feel, it comes out the gate, and it kind of wears its influences on its sleeves right it doesn't yeah. it doesn't hold back it's like by the way you're about to watch a, an art film so
3: strap in so the the film happens with a lot of um time-lapse photography of clouds kind of over the mm. the, the cityscapes of tulsa and over these like road signs that like you you mentioned at the end of the plot of, of the motorcycle boy were introduced to him straight away as this mythical kind of legend and mm. um uh a quick point on the um, the racing clouds and, and that depicting the passage of time. It's something that's going to be, to modern audiences, probably quite cliches sort of thing that is on fucking CSI shows or whatever. It's a, mm. it's a lazy way of transitioning from one scene to another. But back then, this is... <laughs> also in Blade. Yeah. This is not something that, that that was was happening, especially not in films that are ostensibly for a larger audience. And um, it was put in because uh, Francis Ford Coppola's studio... That he sadly lost. Um, released uh, the movie Coyannis Catsy by Godfrey Reggio, which was a experimental documentary which was literally about the passage of time. That was, you know, uh, explicitly what it was about. And it did so in this quite abstract manner of uh, uh, a lot of time lapse photography and a lot of uh, Galley's favorite um, uh, composer, Philip Glass.
2: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, and uh, so he was inspired to, to do that because he wanted to bring the full weight of his, you know, his uh, his high art credentials to this one. They actually yeah. hired Chris Marker, the legendary French director of um, La Jetée, when he turned up in Tulsa and took one look at the city and said, "This place
5: is too ugly. I can't about <laughs> this," and he left. <laughs> Isn't it cool that he started with a theme? Like he like he used time as his mm. theme. He's got clocks everywhere, and then he's got like these fast motion. Clouds like time is is uh, speeding up, and uh there's the great Tom Waits bit where he talks about we've got 35 summers left,
2: mm.
5: and I just you know started figuring out if that's true, and it, it is, and that's scary. If I get to <laughs> if I get to 75, I hope I do. But um, and then like the idea of starting with a theme was really interesting. I don't, I haven't heard of that in any other film that we've discussed. Really starting mm. with that and then padding it out, and
4: it's fascinating that the first character we see is um as I described, cool cat midget, um, Larry Fishburne, or, or the one's known as Lawrence. AKA you know, Fish. Like, he, the, the way he's dressed, like he's in a, I don't know, like a, one of the, the, um, the gangsters in Top Cat. Uh, yeah. what was it? <laughs> you know? Top it's, Cat works.
0: Yeah. He, um, you could say Moonwalker <laughs> as well, if you want, if you're going to go for like a jack oh, Well, funnily there.
4: enough, this film record a bit of Michael Jackson's beat it for, for me. But, um, mm introducing him dressed that way right and then going in to see you know, down dressed in a vest uh protagonist matt dylan is very like wow okay mm. right visually he's trying things and he's introducing different tones and
5: the, the fish thing was really interesting because he was like i was like what the fuck is Lawrence fishman doing in this film because he didn't really need to be there but he was written in late apparently and uh coppola says he's like an angel in the story uh, and he's always around rusty james and always around the group and see a forewarning well susie hinton said that he was um uh there's a lot of mythology here that we'll probably get into a bit later with cassandra and stuff but um he's like hermes apparently he's based on hermes Mm. who's like the deliverer Mm. of messages the miss
3: yeah yeah yeah. which which is the message that he delivers and the way he delivers it is very cool and you have um so rusty that we we have this big kind of dolly shot across the whole billiards room we meet rusty and, and he's playing pool and uh he says he's gonna kill you rusty james <laughs> um, <laughs> they're the lines i always and, remember like yeah. those opening lines and the, the what's great is that so you have rusty mm-hmm. in his vest with his studded headband he's down there playing pool
5: Saying ain't doing and he takes the <laughs> shot and he
3: immediately scratches the white ball into the middle pocket. And it's like it's well, that, so
5: perfect. That's also um foreshadowing as well because like he loses the girl to Nick Cage and yeah. he loses the um the game at the at the beginning. So, yeah, the, 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 the
4: overconfidence is he's is, is trying yeah. to be yeah, successful.
5: And he's outsmarted by his
3: lieutenant Smokey. Uh the introduction of him from the um it's it's also setting up like the the visual tone for the whole film where the the shot that reveals nick cage is so beautiful the way that this eight ball comes rolling out from under the lens and it looks enormous it looks fucking like uh it looks like a joke prop like from top secret yeah um (laughs) and 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 then the camera sort of tilts up to to reveal um smoky nicholas cage's character
5: the uh, DOP Dev said that he didn't like the aspect ratio. He said that he was forced to work in um, one eight five, but it's not as wide as two three five, and it doesn't have like the depth of the boxy four x three. So he said he put all these wide lenses on because he just wanted to shove it in people's faces. He thought that's the only way he could do like dynamic things. So what you're saying about the the, the eight ball there? Oh,
0: it reminded me of uh, of. of- Sergio Leone's work, just mm. the way that the the camera would get so close into these people's faces, it's like there's nowhere to hide, and you re- mm. you know it reveals so much more when you. I I quite liked, and this is like a Simpsons gag in a way. Quite liked how sweaty they were, like the way that they glistened. Um, mm. You know, because these are actors that are not the ages that that they're they're portraying clearly. Um, but there's something about like a kind of sweaty um griminess that means not just in the orgy youth yeah it's uh, and it it reminded me of like the technique that ridley scott used and we just mentioned alien you know when sigourney at the end is is on her own and there's like a glisten on her Mm. face um it was like that but in black and white which mm. made it pop even more yeah. in, in a way were
5: they sweatier than american pie or yeah.
0: well it's hard it's hard to be sweatier than american pie because that's real sweat they yeah,
5: feel <laughs> like that's... they're literally sweating on set that's... because that's flop sweat they save money on a on the makeup budget there there's no one there powdering janet some janitor bursts in and says
3: give me the grease. <laughs> <laughs> grease, me up, retirement <laughs> grease also with it within the the scene so we have a lot of high contrast lighting but that is accentuated by uh there are shadows literally painted on the walls Isn't of, that? The, of the yeah. cafe very angular shadows unusual shapes and um a lot of filmmakers will maybe try and claim that they're doing some sort of German expressionist <laughs> stuff, but this is this is how they used to do it back in the. German Where's
5: the light coming stuff. from? The same place as the music. Also, Patrick, there's one on maybe the more uh, famous one is on Diane Lane's house. The the shadow of the tree is painted onto the front of the house. To fuck you know.
4: Well, I didn't see that.
3: Uh-huh.
4: I wouldn't have even. No,
3: and I was looking for it to be honest. No, it's it's difficult to light for that much contrast without just like fucking up your set completely, especially because they they were shooting on such such wide lenses. I think the the, the widest lens they shot on was a nine point eight millimeter, which is a as far as I'm aware. What was he nine point eight millimeter?
5: i think the the ten ones, and the ten is super. It's almost fisheye. So mm. but, yeah. Uh, generally
3: you would consider a 50 millimeter lens to be roughly approximating human depth perception so these kind of 9.8 and 25 millimeter lenses that they were using what they did was they expanded the space so much but also meant that yeah if you want a close-up you have to put the lens inches away from somebody's face but what it does is it's even if you have something tight in the foreground, you have all this additional space to work with in the background. So you have this huge, deep focus, which is really inspired by um, Greg Toland, who shot um, Citizen Kane. Um, and I think what that allows you to do is um, arrange characters in really fascinating ways. that mm. None of this is just showing off. There are some filmmakers who would maybe put a wide lens on and just... Bend it around the set to see, you know, to make it look like a
4: early nineties hip hop video. Sea blade
3: again. It also, just, I mean,
4: <laughs> it um, it certainly in this film showed off the foreground and the background and that depth. There was a split up to shot, I think, once with Steve and Smokey. I think hmm. I saw that, but otherwise, yeah, I, I there was record that um scene we spoke about in Jaws when they're on the ferry and then they came mm. to the foreground and they went back to the background and they move around the scene and that static camera i saw a lot of that in this and i really like the composition well, uh, of of what maybe what rusty james is thinking and the things at the back of his head are literally there like his dad and his brother when they're in that in mm. their house which is a really nice composition on the bed there
5: on on the alien pod uh, dev talked about the way ridley scott moved actors around and changed the blocking and and through doing that, changed the composition of the shot. Instead of moving a camera, he's moving the the actors mm-hmm. within the shot. And I could tell that, you know, because Dev's a fan of that. It's sort of connected to this film because it, it's the same thing is really happening a lot of the time. Like the blocking is incredible, and I think it owes a lot to some of that early. It, they called it electronic cinema at the time, mm-hmm. where he was like storyboarding with video and doing like early previs. Yeah. By um, making these video animatics of, of, I don't know if it's the entire film. There's a really funny bit where they're all sort of pretending to walk <laughs> on a, um, on like a treadmill, but I don't think it is a treadmill. I just think they're just,
0: no, they're just pretending to walk. Pretending to walk. On, yeah. It looks, it
5: looks quite fun. And everyone's yeah. like trying to outwanker the other one. They all look equally as stupid, but like in, in the final film where they're walking down, um, those streets, they look like the coolest it's the coolest thing so mm. i think it's a great way to use digital and video as pre-planning and then try and shoot on film you know these were like the glory days of, mm. of that
0: i mean i'm going to mention it now because it it's applicable throughout the entire film but but the the composition the blocking some of the best i've ever seen like I was just watching it and was just kind of I was entranced because in a way it, it, it at times I watched it twice so the second watch was the one where I, I was able to just be like okay ignore ignore the magicians tricks that are going on just watch it for for the film the story but in the first watch I I, I must admit I got distracted by just what trying to work it out in a way yeah in a way because I was just like this is this is just so strong and it's also so upfront because he's not hiding behind cuts. He's not hiding behind, um, other, you know, filmmaking tricks to, you know, we, we see it quite a lot now in modern films. It seems to be a kind of wankery about, uh, the, the long take, like what can be the longest take? Well, I'll just do a whole film. It's called 1917. It's like, wow, look out for the cuts. And, but it, eventually you just like, well, uh, it, it loses its power as a, as a, cinematic technique in this i found there was there was purpose behind it as patrick rightfully said there was stuff that was going on in the foreground and the background but also that you had other characters
3: who were seemingly not important in the moment doing important things the sequence when they're turning up to the rumble there is one shot where we have this big wide shot of a uh, of a street a nighttime street The, the street has been slicked down um, so the all the street lights are, are kind of showing on it there is the ever-present billowing white smoke at the back of the scene kind of showing essentially almost like the back of the stage like that's the curtain everything before that is our stage but because it's all shot on location it's so deep and it's so kind of textured and we have um, uh, BJ to the fore of the scene on the, on the right hand side up against the wall you have uh, Smokey really close to camera And Behind him, perched right on the very, very edge, left edge of the screen, you have uh, Midget standing under a streetlight with his hat as if he is illuminated, like he is some kind of ethereal being. And Rusty comes running out of the smoke. And the amount of times that he, BJ, and Smokey change position... As to who's on the right of screen, who's in centre screen, who's who's upstage, who's downstage, and the, especially um Rusty and Smokey, they are constantly jostling for that central spot in the screen, and you just think none of this is just we have to keep this interesting. This is all so carefully worked out. I think Gally spoke about like the idea of theater, like literally theater, that if you've directed theater, all you have is left, right, upstage, and downstage. So it's like, that's how you have to convey who we're looking at right now. But because it's filmmaking, you also get to play with every other element. Oh,
2: scum. I ain't looking for him. Come on, ducky. Come on. Take a fucking swing at me, man, so I can just... Come here, you little screamer. Take a swing at you. Come on! Come on, man, take a swing at me! cut you to pieces. Come on, man! Come on, come on! Come
5: on, There's so many great shots in there. The John Woo's Doves coming out was just a, a glorious yeah, song. I bet Patrick loves this bit, because that that feels a bit musical theatre, but it was fucking extraordinary. Uh,
0: well, is it was it. It had it had it had like uh, echoes of uh, West Side Story, but it also had this moment of for the character where he's like
4: an action man. He got a ballet choreographer to help with the movement of it all, and I think it pays dividends because mm. the, the movement the the there's wonderful. Is it um midget throws him a rope and he just glides along, and they're all yes. there yeah. and separated, but. When that train arrives and they're coming around the corner, the energy of it immediately for me. Biff coming into the foreground, foreground, background again, the gang, Biff, bang, light, camera, action, the feet going out of balance, the knife coming out, the coverage, the way it's shot, everything, the kineticism of this scene is, uh, yeah, really fucking blew me away. Uh, and, and, you know, compound that with the motorcycle boys, um, Introduction the the hopefully Matt likes um that introduction there, you know what was yeah. he doing it's not It's it's really striking and it's very important for their relationship. It's not just an introduction, it's a distraction. And it's it's kind of his downfall, his distraction from his brother and his wanton of him, and that's why he gets sliced up. Right. And the way they move around that whole scene and fight and dance. Well I'm gonna call it a dance. I was uh yeah, I was Thoroughly entertained.
5: I do always laugh when it cuts to Stephen and he's writing everything down. And oh, see, yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> when he comes out with a two by four. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. Jim <laughs> Duggan over here
3: turns up with a bit of wood.
4: <laughs> Reminded me of um, Peep Show when Hans comes to get his crack pipe and he just answers the door to Mark with a stick of plank of wood. What, crack? <laughs> um yeah, that, that scene, Dev, I mean, you know me very well now, chaps, and um, that scene really, really got me. It might not be my favourite scene, but I might keep the lid partially um, closed on keep my Keep some sandwiches in your lunchbox. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I think
3: I, I know what you're saying, theatre filmed, like, cinematically, because so many theatrical adaptations are so scared of messing with the blocking that they just step back. They just they they create this kind of imaginary line beyond which the camera won't get involved and I think that what Carpola does that's so beautiful is that he understands that you don't need to constantly have people in mid shots or more that you can you can create this whole thing and you can still have these huge monumental close ups at times, and that the audience will follow you and as long as you know when you're going to cut into this and out of it, and possibly that is because he went ahead and essentially shot the entire film using green screens using production uh um sketches if they didn't have a set if they had a set they put a photograph of the set behind the actors and they um and, and they and they just sort of jogged on the spot
0: um, <laughs> that does need to be emphasized doesn't it dev that um yeah th- these things don't happen by accident or on the day you can't turn up on a day of shooting and just kind of well you can you can block it there and then but
5: you don't get this film if you do that
0: you know we've seen this this type of coming of age movie before products of your environment trying to get out of the you know the environment having a negative effect opportunities time time, Mm -hmm. you know time etc this style is so so different to anything i'd ever seen employed in that type of story I I said I watched it twice. The first time I got distracted, granted, I'm a bit of a nerd, I'm a bit of a film nerd, so I got distracted by the technique. But if you're a passive viewer, is this something that you can get on board with? I'm not saying we're quite in corral territory here, but we are veering into a space where style is the first thing that you recognise, maybe beyond the emotions. that makes sense?
4: It's it's funny you said corral, because I was going to bring it up <laughs> there was elements of magicality There were there were um slight elements of the film that recalled correct and it's funny you know they're around the same time was it 83 84 and that the brother relationship the 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 legacy of, of oneself and who they want to be the 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 aesthetic and the look of it and that little fight that they have when they dance around each other there was bits of it that if we're talking about that expressionistic kind of filmmaking and experimental then i saw that there but there's i, I don't i i wasn't distracted gally as you say there it, it was appreciation of the the visuals the, the the visuals was was not just visuals that you might have got from the un um, um, unrehearsed or ill-planned scenes. It was, everything has, is there for a reason. And then to develop the plot and the character, it all throws through. Even when, um, the motorcycle boy dispatches the three thugs in the latter fight, he does it so quickly and deftly, you know, and you think back, Rusty James doesn't with, um, with Biff, you know, it takes him a lot longer. He, he takes out the three really quickly and it's a, almost a different physicality that he's, he's not having to run around as much. It's um, efficiency. And I saw that in the choreography there and it all leads very nicely developing these characters.
5: I think it's a good point, Gally. Like I haven't, I've written a lot of positive notes on this one, but one of my caveats is that for some people, a lot of these techniques are quite distancing and it might be a a block for them, as you say. And, And another, another one leading on from that, that I wanted to, talk about a bit was the black and white could we get into that a bit a bit more like the you just the choice to use barely, it barely
0: barely mentioned it but it's uh it...
5: well i thought we were going to and then we got onto lenses and stuff because there's so much to discuss with choreography and lenses and and lighting but like um i think they they said that the high school color of films like rebel without a cause or like later greece and stuff like that i don't know when was greece 78 77 oh okay well yeah like he he didn't want it to be that so he wanted it to be black and white and there is of course the colorblind motorcycle boy justification for the for the black and white but that just reminded me of me at film school trying to shoot things in black and white and everyone telling me i can't i'm trying to think of ways to justify it and like joe mack friend of the show would be like you know you have to tell me why or we're not doing it um, and you know, all the tutors would say, you know, you have to give me an example of why it's why it's in black and white before we can actually go ahead mm. and do it. And everyone's against you when you want to do it. So mm. I, fe- I feel like that um, the colorblind thing was that Coppola coming up with a really great way of justifying doing it, just because. Yeah, was and I, to,
0: I, yeah. I, I was I was happy with that story reason um, and that motivation. I must say though, um, a bit like most black and white films that I ever watch. After the first kind of initial, you know, processing, I really don't notice. So <laughs> it's no, one of those yeah. things where I just kind of just accept the reality of the film that I'm in. Um, I, I suppose in in sharp contrast, uh, what was the Robin Williams films where it's basically like a big uh, painting? Is it Will? What dreams dream? May Come? What dreams yeah. Are, yeah. Mm. Now that. I then became like super aware of how artificial everything right. was. And I think as well, um, as much as I love Link Later, I think Scanner Darkly was another one where I couldn't quite get beyond the okay. the the you know, the style itself. You're right, that's yeah. much
5: more distancing than this. Yeah, like much more mm. distracting. Whereas yeah. this,
0: I think I just immediately kind of fell into, right, it's black and white and every now and again we're gonna get a pop of colour. It also yeah. gives it
4: a very ethereal feeling and a dream yeah. kind of a dreamscape that about feels prevalent throughout the whole film. It's um mm. you know, that that you know, book ended by the um when he looks at himself in the car, the police car reflection and the flashing lights. Yeah. That colour coming through is a real realization of, of seeing
5: clarity and But the motorcycle boy's dead too, so that's why the colour is presumably flooding mm. back for a moment. Mm-hmm. But, and you um, don't
4: get that whole resonance or importance if, if the film's not black and white as well. It's that mm. it really cuts through. Can we
0: can we talk performances? Because I've been holding I've been holding off. But um, who do you want to talk about? I well, I think everybody in in the cast is strong, but I was I was really taken aback by how fantastic Mickey Rourke is in this film. Like I genuinely, as a presence, mm. you know. In order to get the the wild one entrance, um, <laughs> one one must live up to uh, you know a kind of Marlon Brando esque uh, yeah. energy. And my god, is Mickey Rourke like he's just for me? It was like the sun. I was just every any he's in a scene, I'm just drawn to him. Even when he's kind of <laughs> even when he's kind of mumbling, I can't really understand what he's saying. The, the way that he holds himself physically as an actor. <laughs> just meant that like okay whatever he says is clearly going to be the most wisest and <clears throat> truest and beautiful thing and i must pay attention and obviously the film in a way is doing that because there's characters talking about how you know he's that he's a prince he's he can he's do anything he wants that, obviously that helps elevate him but as an actor you need to then be able to live up to that kind of hype and we've seen it many yeah, many imagine, times before imagine if we? it
3: was
4: like jesse eisenberg no offense yeah. to jesse <laughs> yes. but like I'm just <laughs> doing it at time? give us an example at the time of some uh, who would do
3: it in 83 i mean sway swayze could have come across from uh, uh the, the outsiders from, from the outsiders i don't think he would have brought the same kind of level of mystery uh, to it yeah. i don't think he's a, a, as enigmatic as mickey rock is
0: here you said ethereal to me his whole performance was like he was floating like he's mm-hmm. just sort of like in and out of scenes, but without <laughs> it's just, it, I just found it to be so impressive.
5: There's any actors listening, and I don't know if anyone listens to this, like actors wise, but um, he did an interesting thing where he brought a talisman to work every day, whether it was a ring or like an item of jewelry or a photograph, and he put it in his pocket and he told Coppola that that's the thing he's thinking about that day. And uh, whatever it, Whatever it was, that's all he was thinking about. And the the idea is that, like Brando said, something about you can't care, or the audience will see it mm. on your face. So you, the the idea is you don't think about your lines because the lines have to be naturalistic. Yeah. So you think about anything else. And from yeah. the way Galli described it, I think he achieves a lot of those things that you're talking about through through this strange technique that I'd never heard about yeah. before.
1: How come the tank is separated? These are rumble fish. They'd kill each other if they could. Yeah? You boys gonna buy a fish or something? Nah. Uh-huh. That's right, Rusty James. These are he's fighting fish. Watch this. You know, if you lean the mirror up against the glass they try to kill themselves, fighting their own reflection.
2: It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Try it. Right there. In the middle. Yeah. Oh, over that way. See that one over there? That one. Yeah. I wonder if they'd act that way in the river.
2: I should close up now, boys. I don't carry much cash. Really, I don't. Hey, we're looking. Uh, Hey, man, I
1: really dig the colors. Colors? The colors are cool. Mm Hmm. Makes me kind of sorry I can't see the colors. I never thought you were sorry about anything. What's the big interest in the pet store all of a sudden? They've been hanging around here. To look at the fish you're crazy you're really crazy and you know I've known about it all along but they belong in the river I don't think that they would fight if they were in the river if they had the room
4: yeah in the last episode we talked about Robert De Niro smoking and there was really something here again about the way um, Rook was smoking and sit with his cross legs and play pool and greet mm. people and acknowledge. And moments when he'd say something to his brother and then realise he needs to say more, so go up to him. <laughs> in in all of those quiet moments of contemplation, he's just... You, you, uh, there's a scene where after he's been stabbed, um, Rusty James has been stabbed, he says to steve i oh, am just wondering what he's thinking all the time and that's exactly what we are and they get mm. that, that that's the whole performance and direction is what is he thinking what is going on in in motorcycle boy's head it's it's really it's very um uh hypnotic yeah
3: mm. rusty's convinced that he's going to be like him and it's steve that says like the motorcycle boy i can never tell what he's thinking and that's another um as uh, complementing the blocking and the cinematography mm-hmm. that's also one of the the moments where you have the incredible intrusion of the of the sound design, which is that that sequence happens with Mickey Rock pushed right in towards camera and so many kind of uh choices going on in his face, and mm-hmm. the soundtrack has uh has intentionally distanced
4: mm-hmm. it's almost like there's this high pitched whining sound was that because he's partially deaf and yeah there's that um half removed sound mm. quality to their dialogue, yeah, which is really fascinating.
5: Did you and, ever and, ask the question of whether he was deaf? Because I whenever I watch it I always get this feeling that he's listening into conversations. So he can't yeah. deaf is
4: not deaf. It's, I know. Yeah, I know.
5: he he can he can like,
3: target because he can still hear them. Mm. Uh and and also but then what you do hear is he, he picks up the bottle that he's mm. carrying and the sloshing of the bottle is so close but oh, yeah. also echoing around him um and you know between the distancing of the sound the the super wide lens pushing Steve and Rusty so far back into the mm. back of the frame but wide lens meaning that the you don't that doesn't go off into soft focus you can still make out what what they're doing back there because the focal length uh, length on a short lens is so it's so wide that you get to see so much around that um i i think that uh there's a couple of moments with the cigarette acting like you were talking about there's a bit when uh, when they're underneath the bridge after the oh, second what? of rusty's beatings <laughs> um <laughs> and uh, there's a uh, as steve is berating the motorcycle boy for having essentially got both of them almost killed there's a close-up of him with his hand resting on his cheek and he's just kind of uh just gently smiling at them proper mona lisa smile and the cigarette between his fingers is almost burnt out, and on a film like this, I really don't think that that's accidental no. like he is he seems so aware that he is doomed from the start of the film, and Rusty is the only person who keeps refusing to believe and it
0: there's a danger with with this kind of character that it it would fall into just kind of exhausting pretension. It's very hard to be to act cool. I don't know yeah. do you know what I'm saying? Like you know and we've probably all done this as as younger selves. I certainly have <laughs> where you where you are trying to, you know, whether it's trying to impress uh another person, uh you know, you know for a relationship or whether it's you're trying to impress somebody because you're trying to get into a social group. You you know, mm. you try too hard and it becomes quite palpable, doesn't it? Whereas yeah. it, it, for me it's just so effortless. That To the point where I was like, yeah. And and again, it helps us, and it certainly helped me, understand Rusty James more, because mm-hmm. we've got that real, you know, that real comparison. And they're yeah. so, so different. And Matt Dillon as an actor is so different. He's so mm. kind of nakedly open with everything he does. But that's not... We've discussed him on Wild Things, didn't we, where it was like, you know, the accusation is he looks a little bit dumb and he sounds a bit dumb. So he must be a bit dumb. And it's like, well, uh, I don't know if you can, again, you can't act dumb without being smart. He's
3: aware of the effect of what he's doing is. And I think that it's actually really brave, especially in a film like this, when he's so young, this film doesn't, pull any punches on rusty james it, it he is not smart and he is told very very early Ooh. in the film by his He's just not book smart oh, no, word smart <laughs> it's not word smart yeah <laughs> and you know smokey's got the better of him and it's like it's it's just so it's like pretty really sad because he gets broken down as well over the course of the whole film mm. and he's he's so desperate to be a, a vision of something that when the motorcycle boy does arrive and he's dressed like uh Camus or something he's just constantly wearing tweed and knitted vests and he's like this quite cherubic face and he's really soft spoken mm. and he's colorblind and he's partially deaf and he's this is not the tough like greaser like brawler that anyone would expect he's such a different character mm. whereas Rusty's iteration of him is studded headband leather jacket vest like, and <laughs> drinking all the time and and and, and but
4: then there's a nice subtle thing there dev i love that um the motorcycle boy doesn't drink yeah he can blink and miss it and the relationship with rusty james and his father and then who is yeah. the motorcycle boy and he doesn't drink and tries mm. to throw it away from his dad even though they're in a playful manner that seems fucking awesome but yeah. it's what, what what's his problem with drink? We never learn. But there is a problem there, and it's and that's something Rusty James hasn't learned yet.
5: And the stuff about him being insane is like um, even when he says that they have a respect for the insane, it took me a few watches. Like I watched it two or three times in, in researching. And I think he's been sarcastic there. Like um, he knows he's not crazy. I thought he was kind of labeling himself as crazy, but I don't think he does. He's like. Uh, they said that he's like. Mis- I think he's cast- amused by the question, isn't he? Yeah. They said he's been mis- well, just, like yeah. he's been miscast in a play. Was one of the quotes. And yeah. this idea born in the that, wrong era. That this idea that he knows and there's this whole foreshadowing thing with the cop as well, Bert Reynolds cop, where he's like uh, he knows that he's going to be killed by that guy. He knows that it's coming. There's like I think time and inevitability are like the two themes I took from it, and he knows that he's going out as a, a martyr so he's not just going to rob a liquor store or something he's going to do something symbolic with the fish because that's what the neighborhood is going to be talking about um long after he's gone he's going to do something kind of mysterious and again that all links into Coppola's brother who was the he said he was the first intellectual he ever knew Augie or August I think is his name is and he dedicates the film to him at at the end as well in in a quote and that's where the Camus um french intellectual look comes from too it's all connected
0: what i what i liked is is that that idea of of seeing the world differently or and then being labeled insane i found that that theme is kind of threaded through when we when we go to the other side of the track and we see the black community and i found that to be really kind of like a beautiful subtle way of kind of stating how other people see the world differently and do things differently but we label them and we ostracize or we we segregate we you know we find ways of of othering and moving them out and i thought that was because we spend a lot of time and this is one of the things that i think it, the film will test one you've got to get on board with the with the style and the and the and the vibe, but also that there are scenes that don't necessarily get to the point immediately. We just kind of sit and observe. The only word I could think of was meander, but then I find the word meander to have a kind of negative too loose. association. But but loose is probably the right word. We're, the film has this kind of like loose tendency. And in particular, when we spend when we go across to the, the black community, we're in, we're in the pool hall, et cetera, We're just observing, but it's all good character stuff. But it's not. It's, it's necessarily, great
3: how comfortable the uh, motorcycle
4: boys there. Gally.
3: Yeah, he seems like so at ease. Uh, it's really interesting that we did have a sequence in a uh, African American community because the film being set in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you look at the history of what happened in Tulsa. Um, around the turn of the century that um, Tulsa was one of the most prosperous black communities in America and it was intentionally razed to the ground by white supremacists mm-hmm. and I think that um, there can be certain it's not something that you need to to, to know of to, to see the film but I do like the way that you can it's an odd place to set a film like this to have a bunch of like a greaser
5: he said he didn't uh, want it to be New York, and he didn't yeah. want it to be L.A., and he wanted it to be yeah. kind of ambiguous, but it's still a very specific
3: place, isn't it? I guess because cause the writer is from there, so obviously he hmm. just wanted to infuse. It's, it's always the, the best way to infuse, um, because the film could be really mannered. If you went and shot this whole thing on a soundstage, I think you would lose you would end up with you would retain the um the artistry and you would retain the kind of the you know the grand mythological themes and stuff but i think what you would lose is that sense of um grounded reality that kind of helps to anchor the whole thing and and make it feel so kind of sweaty and and tactile and because it 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 could easily i'm sure a lot of viewers would would see this the whole experiment as pretentious it's it's tailor-made for the word if somebody wants to look at something this is you know it's a black and white movie set at a time long beyond the point at which black and white movies were done for you know photochemical reasons it's a it's a choice the score is unusual the structure of the scenes is unusual the way the characters speak isn't isn't uh, uh uh particularly realistic, it's heightened. symbolism, yeah, um, but I do feel like that those little moments are quite quite a wonderful thing and and something like yeah, like just subtly confronting the uh the way that the the race in America is treated is quite fascinating, I thought
2: mm yeah. do you think the, um
4: that oh, Rusty James is uncomfortable in that environment?
3: Uh, he talks about how much he loves it, he says that you know that he he doesn't know why he doesn't spend more time over there that. Uh, you know i figured
4: for me i figured it was because he got drunk and it was his confidence to to go there the first time and follow his brother and his Mm -hmm. brother's opening his eyes up to the world you know, tells him to go to the ocean but it was otherwise would have been uncomfortable with the notion of it before then
0: yeah i
4: agree with that patrick i
0: don't think there's a i don't think there's a there's a kind of mean-spirited prejudice there i think it's more of a
4: no no sorry i didn't mean that at all
0: no he's most comfortable in his diner right
4: that's where yeah, he's yeah. like running around and that's because mouth. where he's important and people yeah, know him yeah. and
3: it's territorial but, he's uh yeah. he's a gang kid like
5: there's yeah. some uh, deleted scenes that are quite interesting there where Stephen describes rusty james like quite on the nose as being like a pinball in a pinball machine bouncing around and not knowing where he's going like he's trapped and he's stuck but he also doesn't overthink anything does he is a nice way to put it probably
4: if i was to have a little just a little question not a gripe but um what's steve doing why is he taking notes
3: in in is the mythological you? terms somebody has to be the person the scribe, to say.
4: scribe. So, okay and that so, yeah. that that relates to midget's role there's okay. a
5: few there's like in, in another deleted scene um Stephen's mother has a stroke and Rusty James is like, what is she dying? You know, he's like blurting stuff out. He's a complete fool, and yeah. uh, and he's like, uh, Steve was like, no, she's not gonna die. And he said that he's writing thoughts in his book mm. um, for himself.
2: Mm. But
5: um, we also realise that he's putting direct quotes from Rusty James into that that book as well. So presum- presumably, he's going t- to live beyond all of these people, and he's going to be the one who tells the story ultimately.
0: Matt, your mythology um, poll. Has, has has shaken me to the core because when I watched it, I w- I I had it that Lawrence or Larry um, or Fish, yeah, wasn't the <laughs> the messenger and the uh, the archangel. Um, and I I actually thought in my reading, but again, simpleton over here, um, I was like, is Motorcycle Boy the the angel, the the kind of the guardian light, only because he he conveniently turns up a couple of times when russie james is in 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 most need and as i say it's because of the performance and the way that uh chooses to shoot him in particular that it all feels very otherworldly but maybe that is part and parcel of the
3: symbolism felt like a like a ghost haunting yeah a ghost is
0: is what i wrote in my notes because he's so and even his interactions with others, I'm not suggesting we're in like Sixth Sense here, and it's Bruce, and he didn't realize he's dead.
5: Did you not think that some, not not about that specific character, but when I watch this film, I always wonder if everyone is there. You have to mm, second guess I never everything. Felt
4: that.
5: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that they are all there. I'm sure they are, but you you consider it
0: because of the style. It then made me question: Am I watching a literal portrayal of these? These gangs and this kid Mm. who's struggling to break free of his environment and the things that are holding him back, or am I watching one great big metaphor? uh, Mm. And and I'm I'm now in this space of like, we're not because we're talking about expressionism. We're talking it is an art house film. You then immediately start going, well, everything seems deliberate, so everything must have purpose Mm. and meaning. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's where. You say the distancing can come because that can be quite energy sapping for anybody watching, right?
5: No, like the the thing you you mentioned there, like that, the breaks what you're saying. I think is when he rises out of his body because then we know that we're into another kind of sequence. But second layer, Nolan, yeah. Stuff. <laughs> but like I, I wrote, um, maybe like Mickey Rock is like Zazish or like God or or something. He's like he's he's playing a 21 year old that looks like he's 25. He's like all the Pied Piper stuff. Yeah. And then th- there's like, um, oh, I've lost my note for it, but he's like a guy who lays down the law and then he vanishes. Mm. And there's also like, uh, he is a martyr. A, you said it a himself. resurrection, yeah. um, cause he yeah. comes back and they don't know. He has all these mysterious sort of parables that he is not really sort of, yeah. <laughs> Jesus was probably really annoying too, the way he uh, <laughs> whispered and, uh,
1: we can't hear you
4: in the
5: back. <laughs> what, yeah, exactly. <laughs> blessed, blessed are the Greeks.
4: <laughs> what do you, um, Within that then, what do you think of his photo in the magazine and why he doesn't want people knowing about that?
3: He, he left and he left with uh, there being no more fights. And Rusty, his younger brother, is the person who reintroduces violence to a community that he had flushed out. And that's the exact moment he comes back. Mm. And then um, I guess his depiction as well on the bike being like, you know, that is, he's got his leather jacket open torso out hair slicked back it's like it's a it's a a a mad representation of him that doesn't match his reality maybe Mm. that's that's it it's Mm.
4: uh... a false pariah from california that you know he because one of his true emotions and it was when he talks about his mother's new partner is like a fucking movie producer or something like that which is i thought was an interesting
0: creates fantasies
4: yeah an interesting kind of look into his psyche from from that point of view why did he go there was it a successful trip did he find what he was looking for and why does he come back and i figure he's come back to die i think we've alluded to that and spoke about that anyway in that kind of maybe a jesse james type mission and and um finale and cassandra he's that's a great little t- scene when he's she dances with him at the um the the music night, where the, the, the little girl extra by the uh, the glasses keeps looking at the camera. But
5: anyway... Uh, she's not the <laughs> only one, Patrick. How many of you? Sophia Coppola <laughs> looks into the lens. These I don't know how many actors, actors. Yeah, we got
0: a little glimpse of the Godfather Part 3 performance. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I think she's better in this. Um, Dev, I like what he says to Cassandra. He's like, not this time. You're not coming with me.
0: Especially on this show, listeners, whenever I one of the guys pick a film that I've, that I've never seen before, I try to avoid... Reading anything, but I will always just go for like one one review just to get a. What does it all
4: mean, Basil? (laughs) I'm basically
0: go to Basil exposition and say, "What does it all mean, Basil?" And and one of the things that got pulled out of the one review that I read was that the score was divisive, and you Mm -hmm. know, I must confess, at no point did I find it to be distracting or out of place. I found it to be of a piece. If anything, it was doing what uh, music should be doing obviously sometimes it underscores an emotion other times it helps uh, bring it out but i found it to be uh, in perfect like lockstep with the visuals and the style that coppler is employing
5: i I wondered if it was like it takes over your thinking sometimes because it's like a slightly too loud clock in your room and but in in a film you can use that uh, and as as with like some some other aspects of the film, the score really grows on you and I, I really appreciate it as an innovative thing that that they did. And like if you can even hear like I think Coppola played a cello or something on the first incarnation and Roman or someone else was playing drums. And the idea is that the drum the percussive drums are like the ticking of a of a clock and everything is kind of connected. But it was ultimately the guy from uh, the policeman, right? There. Yeah.
3: Yeah, um, I I will say that on my first watch, I do remember, and I was like 18 at this point, 18, 19 maybe. So I remember um, finding the score unusual Mm. and that that perhaps I didn't really see where it fit, that I was expecting something more traditional or if it was going to be angular, more angular in a kind of um, classical score kind of way. Mm. Um, There's some really uh bold choices now i've come to absolutely love the score i actually managed to find uh, an 83 vinyl of it in a record shop of <laughs> course um uh but uh, still sealed unbelievable wow um i've never listened to it and i never will no i popped <laughs> Not that much of that. um but uh i i think that there are moments where um It's anachronistic in almost every possible respect um, because we don't know when the film is set, but it kind of it feels like it sort of spans from the 50s through the 60s through the 70s. The only hint I saw that was
5: on one of the magazines. There was like a David Lee Roth or someone on the front of one of the magazines, but they they couldn't they couldn't pay for the clearance on all the magazines. So they put that tarp over them and made it made it look like they were painting the. A convenience store or whatever it was so that was a way of covering oh, yeah. it but i did see i think it was david lee roth he's on one of those covers so i don't know if that dates it or or
3: not but there's um it, not so much in the score but in the soundtrack there's a kind of sick shredded guitar riff yeah. at one point after he walks out of the arcade over in the uh, other side of the tracks See, um uh, so that is not something that would have existed in the 60s and motorcycle boys bike seems too modern to be. From yeah, that era it looked a little old. bit Sarah Connor to me, didn't it? Look after. Yeah, this big and and the, <laughs> and the score is is contemporary to the to the time. You know, the the mm-hmm. Stuart Copeland's use of like unusual polyrhythms and reggae inspired uh, um, rhythm guitar is 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 an unusual choice to to have that kind of thing. Um, uh, the the time when they go on the motorcycle ride before they go to the pet store which is quite a dramatic sequence is scored with this jaunty loop of car horns beeping rhythmically yes. yes, yeah
5: they they talk about that a little bit on on the the making of um he he didn't realize it was the first thing he'd ever scored he thought it was like it was cheating to take some material that he wrote for one scene and put it over another one one of the coolest things is that you can do a couple talked about it too you can do subconscious things with it like when we watch a film we are looking at the visual and we don't always take in all of the the audio we, we get it on a subconscious sort of textural level so there's tons of stuff in here and in, in this mix that you don't even really it doesn't you don't think it registers but it does subconsciously it's really clever
4: this certainly hit me straight away though Matt. the music like got to me straight away oh this is Interesting. I've never heard this before. Um, and it, um, I think I was on the verge of like, this doesn't feel like it fits the film and mm. was distracted for a bit. But then the last few days that I've driven to work, I've been listening to Dyke Books Me In every day. So it's, what about the really bit where Diane Lane, to?
5: who we have to say is like the most amazing, <laughs> one of the most amazing things in it. But uh, she's like, uh, I love that bit by the way, where she goes, I love you. Because she doesn't, yeah. she's sort of trying it on, like she doesn't really believe it. She's just sort of saying the words to see, to see if she because really thinks it's true. Yeah. But I wanted to say on on <laughs> uh, as a music and visual that's inseparable to me now is when she's up on the. Uh, I think it's it's when uh, I think it's when he's actually at work, and the, yeah. the clock the clock is going fast, and there's mm. that bit that that really sticks in my mind. And then there's the bit where she's on the bookshelf too, but the music and her in in that scene it's just inseparable now it's just
3: and the uh the the piece when he's flying as well is again yes. it's not really what you would it's it's not um it's not this kind of floaty twinkly kind of music
5: that's the one dev he wrote it for another scene he, he wrote i can't remember which scene he wrote it for but he's like that's cheating isn't it i can't take it from there and put it there but yeah it wasn't supposed to be that one but it works beautifully
3: it's not particularly emotionally instructive. Maybe not up until the reveal of the motorcycle boy's death, and you have that dramatic two-note mm. sting when yeah. he rolls over. Yeah. Um. And and the way the music builds from there to the point when he's punching the the the, the cop car window is probably the most instructive it ever is. And you have mm-hmm. this very kind of dramatic synth That's line. That's really that great part. moment. Actually.
4: Yeah do you think with the with the fish the japanese uh, excuse me the siamese fighting fish the rumble fish mm. and they're they kind of what what happens to them is the film a greek tragedy and a little bit predictable and where it's heading the end?
3: i guess um you
4: know what does it all mean basil kind of exposition about with the fish representing and do them the
5: fish and, die as soon as they go in the river
0: yeah are a, they, are they a even even a Cod pre- comes in and just says, <laughs>
5: and <he> says <laughs> yeah. there's always a bigger fish i mean well that's an existentialist problem isn't it it's all yeah, pointless it really isn't it is just problem. die in the river
3: well you're talking you know uh midwestern U- united states uh considering the ohio river set on fire because it was so <laughs> fucking filthy around this era I'm not
4: sure that I would trust an industrial
3: we should have a new segment, segment called
2: cool
4: but what <laughs> uh, about it, audience and I suggest you don't do what is it I'm not going to worry about it and no, I suggest you don't hear <laughs> the audience I can't remember try the, enjoy, it, the, right. film.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. enjoy um, the film yeah um what I what I think I love about stuff like this film over maybe films that are uh, uh, more kind of I don't find this a closed loop one-to-one interpretive film. And I think that that's absolutely to its benefit. I think it's like a tone poem. I think that it does have a, um. that there is, it is a tragic arc and it's going to end tragically as all of these tragedies do, because otherwise <laughs> they wouldn't be called that, but just Greek, um, then. But in terms of, you know, <laughs> you can, yeah, you can obviously the idea of the, the, the fish is a, it's a, it's a solid metaphor, and he does spell it out. But I don't think that that's the only thing the film has on its mind. No, I think no. that. Agreed. And I think that really, really helps. That you know, like you were saying, Matt, about uh, uh, or possibly Patrick,
5: is it the motorcycle the, the, boy's gesture that people will understand? Yeah. Maybe it has to be simplistic to get his message across.
3: Yeah,
0: that's
5: his. That's the thing he decided to do because that's his mythology.
0: The idea that, that sim that simplistic metaphor at the end. Is all that the whole film is about uh, we've disproved that by our conversation for the past hour and mm-hmm. a bit right is that yeah. you know we're 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 pulling different fragments and meanings and and who and obviously um you know we might agree on the majority of it, but I saw things that that you know you might not see, and also that the film is there to be discussed. It's not a as you say a, a kind of derivative coming of age. Well, this is what the rite of passage, my son. And uh, and then you can go and enjoy the beach in California. It doesn't work. You know, it's not. You know, yeah. It goes beyond that. I must say, though, Devon, I had to remind myself of Coppola's intent, which you mentioned at the beginning about you know, making an art film for, for younger people. And so that's what helped me. Rationalise the fact that it was stated up front because that Patrick for me that was the one bit of dialogue where I was like
4: hey, everything's but, been so which which one sorry
0: when he when he does say like
4: I don't think they would fight if they weren't in a
0: tank yeah, it was a bit like <laughs> Fish in the river. Uh, but then I also had to remind myself okay this is an adaptation. From a book, and a book has more time
3: to kind of. The writer was also very young. She was eighteen when she yeah. published um, "At the Outsiders," <laughs> and this was. She plays I, a I mean... prostitute on the
4: street. Yeah. yeah,
3: I think you have to remind yourself, don't
0: you? That who Who's the target audience for this film? And and, Co- and Coppola was saying, "Listen, I want to make an art film for, for teenagers, and I want to make something that's going to be a point of difference to the outsiders. The outsiders wears its, uh, you know, wears all of uh, its meaning." You know, nothing gold stays. Uh, whereas in this one, um fish will fight. Yeah, if they're in a but tank,
3: there's a there is like a bit of a as a symbolism dump. There's uh, a lot to do with the you know rusty, rusty. Oh, like yeah. rusty trying to take over from his brother. There are little moments throughout that I find that that headband that he wears with the studs on it. Is like his, his, his crown. Mm. And you'll notice that he immediately takes it off when he's away from the gang and alone with Steve because Steve is the only person that... And he immediately takes the crown off and he just says he's tired.
5: And he looks f- forlorn. Same with Patty. Takes it off and falls asleep. Yeah. And Patty's holding it in the dream sequence where he floats <laughs> over as well. Uh, and you've got the, the wound on the side. I mean... Fucking oh, no. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, uh,
3: <laughs> And then... um uh after he's had his head bashed, you underneath the bridge towards the end of that sequence when Rusty is is, you know he's listening to the motorcycle boy tell him that the gangs weren't anything, and he he reaches out and he picks him up and he cradles him like a dying saint in a renaissance painting. It's just so like um Coppola loves Catholicism, doesn't he? Yeah. He really yeah, does. So <laughs> it it's the and all this this is all the kind of stuff that if you drop it in and you don't mean anything by it, that's infuriating. If you put these things into a film and you have the confidence to understand that symbolism is symbolism, symbolism is not, look what I meant. Look at the thing that I meant. I'm not a dummy. I've read two books. <laughs> I've read, read all these books <laughs> book and this book. And then I put this book into this book. <laughs> and that's symbolism. Yeah. Uh, I've read everything ever written. Test Test me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Do you like the bit where um,
5: I was going to put it in favourite shots or something? Do we do this? I was with, it with do the best shot, Yeah, yeah there's for, for favourite shots, there's a there's a bit where Nick Cage and Rusty James are having their power struggle, and the the clouds are projected onto the window. <laughs> It's amazing. And uh, apparently they couldn't get those clouds in Tulsa. So they had to send some bloke to Hawaii and get the clouds on like plates and then come back. Oh, uh, Hawaii has the best yeah. cloud. Yeah. That yeah. sounds like an awful job, is not it? But yeah. um I love that scene. I love it. It's not quite symbolism. I guess it is, but n- not in a religious sense where there's the handing over of the pool cue and yeah. uh, he's, he's passing the baton and Nick, Nick, Cage just like says, "Don't flatter yourself." Like he doesn't even take it. He's stolen his girl, and he's 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 dissed him, and uh, and then it cuts out to a wide shot, and there's like a burning, um, trash can, and Rusty's sort of life is you know pretty much empty at that point. It's really clever, yeah, dumpster fire,
3: and and that was done practically in camera, right? Insane. They went, they projected
4: those plates. Yeah, I spent so so long trying to work it out. The, yeah, it was. Um, it's
5: it's just that they're in, in real the time, and the clouds are, are in fast motion. It's yeah. just very. So cool. the, I've never seen the it way done they've like angled
3: the, the the screen with a projector projecting onto the screen, which is reflected off the glass. It's just this.
0: But the 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 best solutions are sometimes the most simple, yeah. right? And
3: I, I
0: I mentioned my love of Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's full of them. It's full of like yeah, old yeah. old worldly magicians' tricks with with cameras. Uh, and and yeah, it's just like, it's wonderful. It's the kind of stuff that, yeah. Kind
3: of the I benefits of being of a massive nerd yeah. once again, that, you know, couple has studied all this shit. He knows, <laughs> he knows it all. He can just reach in and grab a trick. Which is why it devastates me. It devastates me that uh,
0: that I can't get Jack out of my head. Cause so many times because it was on <laughs> Sky Cinema. You you yeah. didn't get it until 2000 and late, uh, Matt, but I had it in the
5: 90s and Jack was on. I've still never it. seen Jack so i, it, I still you know haven't what? got it
0: I, we should watch it as a bit yeah. of a laugh a giggle because yeah. it is embarrassing it's, as a movie as a movie well as you a pick it galley
3: as- i dare you to pick jack yeah. no 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 chance i'll, I'll, double I'll, down. I'll pick barton man over
0: fucking jack um no no <laughs> chance <laughs>
3: it's the only one i didn't i didn't rewatch when i did my full couple of rewatch. i went i went through one. like yeah. gardens of stone tucker a man in his dream all the all the stuff that nobody's even heard of but i'm not <laughs> touching jack i'm not i'm not i'm not, I'm not in it, the, um, you know
0: what the worst thing about jack is that he doesn't even have any fun with it he doesn't even do like the body swap humor stuff that you'd expect from a, a you know a 50 year old robin williams hanging out with a bunch of kids because he's a nine year old boy trapped in an old man's body no he's just ah it's it's tragic
3: anyway um favorite shot uh i mean it could be any number but uh one that always sticks with me which is because it's not a shot that has any kind of reason to be there it's just beautiful. Um, the racking up of the billiard balls mm. in the billiard hall across the tracks with just the absurd wide angle on it and the balls kind of looming into the camera. And you can see the entire billiard hall behind them. Uh, the, the, the skill in, in that being your establishing shot, for that sequence is just, I don't know. I think that's stunning. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's casual genius. Uh, Matt,
0: it's time for one of my long, uh, overdrawn. <laughs> meandering, shall we say. Uh, Settling. Passages. Settling. So I have left the diner because Tom Waits has told me to. to I need to stop uh, with the colourful language. He was not a fan. Down, um, and, I, and I thought, well, heavy wears the crown, symbolism. So I run across the tracks because there's a jazz festival going over there. <laughs> and in the pool hall, one of the princes playing, I want to beat him. But unlike Uncle Phil, I am not a hustler. So, in order for me to uh, in order for me to to find out what I can and can't do, I must stop off at the local uh, Duran Duran magazine store and find out what Critics Corner <laughs> has to say about Rumblefish. I've made that up on the cuff, as you can tell. Is anyone still listening? this not my thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Matt, what 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 was the consensus at the time?
5: Well, I, I went over to Siskel and Ebert 1st Um what a shock. Siskel didn't like the movie. Uh, he <laughs> said, <laughs> when, are we, when is he going to like a movie? He's like When's he going to like one that I like? He liked Who uh, Framed Roger Rabbit?
0: Yeah, yeah, he said he liked the rabbit, didn't he?
5: Yeah, <laughs> The <laughs> rabbit. Uh, <laughs> Siskel said, it's sort of kind of sad. Uh, no, he didn't. I'm shocked. joking. Uh, Siskel said Coppola had unfortunately lost his way since the first two Godfather movies and... Oddly, specifically, the first half of Apocalypse Now, second half, he obviously didn't care for. Uh, he said this is a heartfelt movie. The black and white is moody and attractive, depicting a smoky hell. Uh Interesting soundtrack, too. Uh But he felt the story was much too artificial. And for all its gutty realism of contemporary kids with contemporary problems, he found uh Matt Dillon repellent. And he gets to be boring after a while with his James Dean impersonation. Uh, He found Rourke's whispering annoying too. Um, Hopper Hopper is really annoying, he says, as the drunk father. And the hip smugness stops us caring about the kids, especially Dylan. And then Ebert chimed in with some sense. Uh, He identified that the hip smugness was actually a defense mechanism on the part of Rusty James. Um, He found it an interesting offbeat experiment by Coppola, He said, reviewing the story is to miss the point. He said, it's a stylistic exercise in black and white. Coppola calls it an art film for teenagers. Um, He said, the atmosphere, the mood and the behavior is, uh, you know, all effective. And then he said, weren't you touched when... And then Siskel cuts him off and just says no. uh, Oh, God. They both agreed that it's an interesting looking film. And they both enjoyed the music. I think Ebert said he wanted to listen to it. At home or something like that. He wanted to take the music home and listen to that. Uh Time magazine's Richard Corliss, this is according to Wikipedia, he said, um, Rumblefish is Coppola's professional suicide note to the movie industry. And it's wow. a warning against mm-hmm. employing him to find the golden gross. No doubt this is his most Baroque, oh, can we still say Baroque after that? Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> self-indulgent film. It may also be his bravest. And uh, notably, um, Andrew Sarris and uh, David Denby uh, at the Village Voice and uh, in New York gave the film harsh reviews at the time. So it was a mixed bag, critically.
1: Mm,
0: yeah, and commercially, um, you know, I didn't run through the numbers. It made,
5: uh, what did he say? It did no business, was the Coppola quote.
0: Yeah, I think it was uh, the budget 10 million, Devlin, and it made
3: two. I think. It was um pretty much a disaster. Uh two point <laughs> five million dollar pull domestically, and I can't imagine in that particular era of history, um, that you would get a lot of international as well mm. at that point. So yeah, it it recouped uh one quarter of its budget.
0: It's just interesting, isn't it? We you know, we we did a little bit of a, a mini deep dive in into Coppola's filmography right at the beginning. Um but it just kind of speaks to you know, what a strong run he had, you know, a four, a four film run that oh, unmatched, maybe Rob Reiner is the only other person you could say. Uh, I know there'll be some Nolan fans out there. who will be like, uh, excuse me, Christopher. Uh,
5: time will tell with Nolan. We've got, we got to give him more will time. Tell, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, even, even I picked Inception, even Inception at times, maybe, but you know, you're not gonna get ra- you're not gonna get convinced me on tenet. So um yeah. but but either way, I think he he had such a strong seventies that it's just so fascinating that he wasn't able to navigate the eighties or nineties um mm. in such a way. But maybe maybe this is it. Like, you know, creatively he was at his peak, he peaked early and um he never found material Because you know, he was clearly interested in this material, but didn't find the commercial He didn't bring the audiences along.
3: I think the industry went away from his kind of filmmaking. Like he was the quintessential 70s filmmaker, which was that no compromise. This is what I want to do. I want to make this. This is what interests me. He had a high artistic uh benchmarks that he wanted to hit he wanted to be able to say and do these things and if you look at the way that his contemporaries went in the 80s even scorsese of 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 the of the rest of the crew scorsese struggled a bit in the 80s as well in the mid 80s uh with stuff like after hours which is a fantastic film but at the time nobody gave a shit it was you you think they're also
4: like lacking a a a brando or a, a de niro
3: I think um, the the Outsiders, if you look at what the kids from the Mm -hmm. Outsiders went on to do and what they got famous for, they were not getting famous for re chin-stroking adaptations of literary source material. They were getting famous for Top Gun Mm -hmm. and they were getting famous for Dirty Dancing. The The field had changed, hadn't it? But yeah, it was... uh, It was the time Schwarzenegger it was, it so was Spiel- yeah it was spielberg
4: and lucas's eighties.
2: Yeah, it wasn't
3: coppler yeah. and scorsese's
2: pop quiz hot shot
4: pop quiz assholes hey, looking forward to the buzzers on this one um maybe oh. i'll have to turn the volume up for some whispered notes but <laughs> hey, reminder of the scores matt leads with seven dev with six and galley with five there's really turned things around this year Let's see how he gets on today. Um, Gally, watch your buzzer, please. You got any bread? <laughs> oh, that's, that, that's my uh Roku it is, by the way. Um, okay. uh, Matt, watch your buzzer,
2: please. What the fuck did I do? I didn't do nothing.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> and Dev. You, tell him. Whoa, I didn't need oh, to oh, tell him That's all. <laughs> that's great. Hi, you frog. <laughs> 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 Oh, good buzzers, good buzzers. Uh, okay, question one. Question one is, what's playing at the cinema that they pass by on their night out? You, tell him! Devlin Mike, get this, or Kermit get this one. Um, what's the answer? It is Debbie Does Dallas. <laughs> oh.
2: Yes,
3: it is. <laughs> Very tellingly, they walk past that masthead when they are talking about their mother, and there is the audible sound of sexual moaning Ooh. during that sequence, which Whoa. is, again... Ooh, the
0: symbolism. Devlin, oh, yeah. Devlin dropping some knowledge. We've just found out why Cisco did not like the film.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I have never been horny in my entire life. Take it away. <laughs> Devlin with question one there. Question two is, what's the name of the billiard hall? What the fuck did I do? I didn't do nothing. <laughs> oh, Matt was first on the buzzer there. Matt, Benny's billiards. Correct Benny's billiards is correct! Break it down, break it down. Um, one oh galley to tie. I'm out of there for the win. Question three What's written on the back of Smokey's jacket? You tell him! Go on, Kermit. It's the wild deuces. It's the wild deuces which is, is August correct.
3: Coppola august coppola which is the uh, francis's older brother that was his old as he called it club <laughs> and, that's, and, and august coppola that's nick cage's dad so no nick way. cage is wearing his
4: dad's gang jacket this this quiz gave us questions and trivia and also from galley's buzzer that's my who it is who is the the bread thug i called him <laughs> who's thug? bob the goon in batman Oh, oh shit!
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Patrick. I I, I must admit, I had no chance in that quiz whatsoever. Um, Sorry, mate.
4: No, it's cool. It's cool. I gave you, I gave you Benny's billiards. That was an easy.
5: You'll get us when <laughs> we do, Jack.
0: Yeah. <laughs> when, when we get to, yeah. How many How many hairs are on Robin Williams' chest? I've already got that nailed. <laughs>
4: um, well, no, later. the question is how many's on his knuckles. Sorry, mate. Ah, uh, of course, of course. Very
0: good. That's a thing. <laughs> shade um okay cool well uh i suppose it's time for our final thoughts and recommendations i will start with uh not the obvious person uh, patrick first time watcher what what are we thinking
4: um well do i recommend it yes was i really enamored by it this week fuck yes i i watched it on wednesday and i had a really interesting kind of reaction to it that it seemingly swept over me i got really um I don't know, like I almost wasn't aware I was watching it. You know, just saying the screen. I found the last half an hour really flew by and it did again on my second watch. And then my drive to work on the next day on Thursday was all I could think about was the film. I was just kind of recalling images and the ideas and the, the 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 my my main takeaway was the kind of legacy of your family of your parents of your your siblings um we spoke about that on fight the navigator a little bit and i think that came to the fore again for me here it reminded me of 70s films of 90s mumblecore films of the warriors of bellini and antonioni i i matt mentioned eight and a half um earlier and it, it felt like a postmodern kind of um, postscript to West Side Story in the aftermath where someone hasn't learned their lesson, which is really fascinating idea to me. And how this, um, is it a character study? I I, I don't know, but our talk today has been really good for me because I don't think I've understood everything. I think there's still more to to dive into. I really want to watch it again. I, I think the fight is extraordinary from the visual sense you know, Coppola is able to put in something so like an action set piece. Um, and this ballet type fight that sweeps across the screen with the camera movements and his use of, of location and camera is extraordinary. And it looks beautiful and it's very impactful. And then, you know, that action sequence is then down to pure drama, whether wistful and, um, pontificating. And th- th- this noirish dreamscape, and the contrast of the characters, the brother, what they want, what they can't have, and the turmoil, and where it leads to—I found it very emotionally affecting. It's very succinct and almost subtle. Even the out-of-body experience—it happens just smoothly and eloquently. That the tracking shot around the buses through the town. Through the nightscape with all these, this crowd in there and going from A to B, it's all very high filmmaking. And I can see why it didn't make the money at the time and it may lack a huge audience. I do see the reasons why, but personally, it really worked for me. Uh, I thought it was knockout. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Gally, you were the first timer as well. How did you feel about it?
0: I think I got lost in the poetic haze of the film, and I personally really responded to the style, rhythm, and energy of it. Um, but I know that as I was watching it, I was somewhat distanced and not quite fully invested emotionally in the characters and their struggles. Uh, so unlike you, Patrick, I, there, was, there was a slight disconnect for me. Um, but I've only seen it twice now. And I wonder if, like, more viewings will enhance that that response. Um, and at times, I felt like it was an artistic enterprise, a uh, kind of an experiment. So you mentioned about it not being showy. I think it was purposely showy, but this is the difference between style over substance, which can get kind of thrown at, at certain filmmakers. Um versus somebody who's able to kind of helm that style and apply it appropriately to elevate the material. And I think Coppola does that in this instance. I I enjoyed it. I thought that technically I was just kind of in awe of the direction, the use of lenses, the blocking, the staging. Um, I think it, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the most cinematic theater productions I've ever seen. Um, But I must recognize that my didn't get its hooks fully into me. Um, so it's a strong recommendation from me because I think it's technically phenomenal, and I would urge people to seek it out. Um, I think the performances are all stellar, Uh, and finally, I think people should seek it out because um, you can now add this, and I will add this, to Coppola's hit list Um, because there were so many misses in his latter career um, that it's quite nice now to kind of rebalance the ledger a little bit, so I'd like to say thank you, Devlin, for finally making me watch it. And I hope our listeners take some joy uh, and and discover it themselves. Um, But I would say, as a caveat, that if art house cinema is not your usual cup of tea or not something that you normally um, get on the wavelength of, then, you know, you need to be aware that there's some hurdles there that you're going to have to navigate. That's me. Um,
5: So it's a strong recommendation from me as well. What about you, Matt? Uh, I, I love the film. I think it's a knockout. I think it's Devlin's best pick to date. And I think it's a film most people probably haven't heard of unless they're as into films as, as we are. And uh, I told a couple of my friends who were doing it and they'd never heard of it. And I think that'll be true for a lot of people. But there is prick up when you say who's in it. Like As soon as people hear the cast they're, you know, I, I feel like they're going to go out and, and watch it. Uh, so, and I suspect that's one thing you might like about it too, Deb. It's like a diamond in the rough that you've, that you've found and, uh, and, and it's like, uh, we can get more people to flock to it because of, of this discussion and that's, that's great. I feel like I could have written something for the website, but, um, I haven't had time. So, um, I'll try and breeze through some of this. It's like, um, it, it, this could be my favorite film in, in in a, in a slightly parallel universe, but it's, like a relationship i think like when you meet the right person you have to meet them at the right time and when i met rumblefish it was like slightly early or slightly late and and the outsiders was definitely too late for me i didn't enjoy that at all um so yeah it feels like one of those films that could could be your favorite but um and it is one of dev's favorites which is great um yeah uh there's some posturing i think and it's a bit vague and abstract as as galley's touched on and some will find it pretentious not that coppola cares um and it and you said meander earlier and i wrote the same word It, it does meander and i think it stalls here and there but from the structure of it it's one of my favorite structures we've ever had in in any film i love the musical interludes and the fast motion clouds and the creation of a a, usually when we say world building, we think about Ridley Scott, but this is great world building. And uh, more than that, I think uh, it to be so filmic and so surreal, yet believable and accepted as a, as a genuine environment for a story. um, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. He said it didn't do business in the USA and you've done the statistics there, but the, there was a high school preview and the kids rejected it. But the Chilean, Argentinian and Uruguayan kids claimed it as their own. And there's a documentary on the disc, on the Criterion disc called Looking for Rusty James, but it's an hour and a half. I haven't watched it yet. And it's all about how the movie's kind of been claimed by the South American youth. Um, Yeah, uh, Matt Dillon said, it's an art film with no commercial considerations. And this, I've got a ton of stuff from Coppola because his quotes are so good. He said, the biggest risk is to live your life and not use it to do the things you want to do. This is the film that taught Coppola how to make things his way and to hell with the consequences. I'm always fascinated by the photography of this one. And this was a chance to break it down and and look at it in depth. So thank you, Devlin. And it, it sounded to me from Devlin's notes that the, the audience don't get to see our notes. And, um, from reading Dev's notes, I feel like he has a personal connection in a, in a family sense to mm-hmm. this one. And I always try and be a bit personal with and revealing with some of my picks and thoughts. So, uh, we're from the same town-ish and we've had similar edu- film educations-ish. So th- thanks for being, having an, an emotionally honest pick and a very daring pick, Devlin. So I, I think it paid off. Big, big recommend from from me. Uh, so would you like to finish us off definitely so to speak <laughs>
3: yeah sure um yeah there was there was an emotional connection to this one um i think much as i did with the slightly more divisive all the real girls that we uh that we discussed there is something about kind of towns whereby the infrastructure feels like it's dying from the inside out that we uh respond to i think and and um every scene that that Mickey Rock um Matt Dylan, and Dennis Harper share in this is just so kind of I find them just like aching like there's just a a a beauty and a sadness and and you know uh there's there's love and there's affection and there's rejection, there's being on the inside being on the outside there's the strange familial dynamics that happen under the surface and um it's just such a such a unique and moving portrayal that doesn't really take any time out to judge what's going on with these characters. Um, and I guess, uh, so on the, on the, in terms of why I personally respond to the film, that that's basically it, that I feel that the the symbolism and the beautiful filmmaking, uh, is all in service of something really palpable and, and, and real. Um, I I just feel really grateful that we got a film like this from a filmmaker as important as Coppola, that um, everything that potentially hindered him from being able to have the kind of like stacked filmography that Scorsese and Spielberg managed to accrue in their later years, his absolute inability or unwillingness to compromise on the work he wanted to do until perhaps it was far too late for him meant that it just stands as like a really unique and really wonderful artistic statement you know one of the all-time greats firing on all cylinders using his huge arsenal of cinematic tricks applying them to an adapted work but one that spoke to him in a really personal way um, it felt like it was given the exact scale that it needed to be it didn't have to it's not a personal project that you had to cut corners for it's lush and it's innovative and it's magical and it's totally heartfelt and sincere and uh uh unabashed in its artistic or and emotional ambition that it's like, it's nostalgic but it's forward thinking, it's paying homage to the lineage of its medium but it shows what a marriage of technology and classical techniques can achieve and I think the film was really ahead of its time like, it, when I turned up at film school, this was naively what I thought I would have, the platonic ideal of what I would have loved to be able to make at some point in my life This collaborative but really personal, resonant, creative piece of work created in a spirit of like pure expression. I can't guarantee that everyone who watches it will love it, but I think any movie fan should appreciate that purity of intent. And if they can't, I'd be very surprised. It doesn't shock me that the boringly literal Gene Siskel (laughs) couldn't get on board with it but the absolute top lads of the magic realist southern american countries understood it innately because it's it's about letting go of of what you feel a film needs to tell you and i, I don't know i'm just really chuffed that that we got a chance to talk about it because it is mm. one that means a lot to me and i'm i'm just really glad that the that, that two of you hadn't seen it and and that and that it worked and um yeah Ah, oh, it's uh uh I'm just very happy to get my love of this film down on record somewhere.
4: I'm looking forward to your artwork for the cover as well. Oh yes, yes,
3: mm, yes indeed. I,
0: I will. I will. Uh, I take umbrage with what Matt said, though, saying that this is the best film that you've selected for the show because I think he's forgetting Predator Two. So.
2: Oh,
5: I do like Predator Two in my stocking at Christmas time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so just maybe revisit that. Stay mm. <laughs>
0: Okay. Good, good. Right. Where where team can our listeners find
5: Rumblefish? Right. Well, I this was an easy prep for me because I had the criterion Blu-ray. If you if you can play American discs, you should get it. If you can't, Devlin, do you recommend the Eureka one? Eureka Blu-ray is
3: very, very good. The Eureka Masters of Cinema. It's also really cheap right now. You can pick it up brand new for less than a tenner pretty much anywhere you look for it. Uh, the extras are largely ported over from the two-disc DVD special edition, so if you, for some reason, don't want to go HD, which is mad, you can go SD. Uh, the Blu-ray also has, as a an option, you can watch the film with only its music and effects track. Oh, my God. I thought they is, should have done it. I watched it for about half an hour, and it is
5: fascinating and so hypnotic. Yeah, well, the, the commentary's great. It's got the South American kids documentary it's got a ton of interviews um as far as streaming and stuff there's nothing in korea so get the blu-ray if you're in the uk you can rent it you have to pay for it you have got to rent it on google play microsoft youtube amazon apple sky store and if you're in america you can stream it on prime video and rent it on amazon apple tv direct tv google microsoft voodoo and fubo <laughs> no fubo this week uh just uh youtube youtube we did it up front but
4: yeah is there a rumble fish t-shirt i can buy yeah i uh uh
3: i actually created a poster an alternative poster design for this one months ago uh just because i wanted it for myself and you can also buy it it's on my etsy store um, we'll put a link in the show notes below that will take you directly to uh, my website, com. there you can either purchase the poster as a high quality G play print, uh, or there is a t-shirt on the t-mail store, com, the home of Rewind movie purchases r- 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 merchandise <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, merch it up well listeners,
0: if you like what we do then please like, share, subscribe spread the gospel team, that's all we ask and yes, we hope that you are enjoying the open slate, the open, the slate, open slate series. The open we have slate. more, we do have the more interviews, slate. um, coming up, <laughs> which will be fantastic. And also we are entering our spooky season. Um, now I'm just going to tell you now listeners that we've got a listener request, um, for the thing. So that is going to be one of the films that we'll be discussing over the spooky season. We haven't decided on our second. So. Um, but if you want your homework, go watch John Carpenter's The Thing. We'll say our
3: goodbyes then, shall we, team? We shall indeed. Thank you very much for um, for having a chat, guys. <laughs> much appreciated. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, uh, it leaves me to
0: say, Rusty James, Rusty James, Rusty James. It's Gally in Glasgow. <coughs> signing out. <laughs> Stay safe, everyone.
3: I thought California was on the coast. <laughs> it's seven <laughs> in London.
4: At time is a funny thing. <laughs> it's it's Patrick in London.
5: Another glorious battle for the kingdom.
0: It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.
2: We go down.